Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, reaching a deal with Google. It's new money, new revenue, it's good for the new sector. With a December deadline looming, Ottawa inks a deal with the tech giant, a $100 million annual investment for the news industry, while keeping Canadian journalism on the Google platform. We'll hear more from the Heritage Minister, Pascal Senange, also. I'm so proud that this landmark investment A historic moment for our country is happening here in the great province of Alberta. If Ottawa and Alberta can work together to bring about a multi-billion dollar plant for green plastics, why trigger the Sovereignty Act over net zero electricity? And... Billions earmarked for the construction of rental housing, but is it enough to address the homelessness crisis or even create affordable homes for Canadians struggling to make ends meet? We'll get an assessment from Canada's housing advocate. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Well, it looks like Canadians will still be able to use Google to search for their news. This afternoon, the Heritage Minister, Pascal Senange, announced a deal with the American tech giant. Google agreeing to pay the Canadian news industry compensation worth $100 million annually, avoiding any conflict before Ottawa's Online News Act comes into effect December 19. Take a listen to what we heard from the Heritage Minister. Google wanted certainty about the amount of compensation it would have to pay to Canadian news outlets. And I can say today that Google will be compensating our news organization with $100 million annually, and it will be uh, indexed to inflation. Canada reserves the right to reopen our regulation if there are better agreements struck elsewhere in the world. This is the first time that a transparent system has been created. Many doubted that we would be successful, but I was confident that we would find a way to address Google's concern and make sure that uh, Canadians would have access to uh, news in Canada on their platform. This is a historic development. It will establish a fairer commercial relationship between digital platforms and and journalism in Canada. And I would also like to point that this agreement is the result of our government's work in responding to calls from the independent news sector. As our media uh, ecosystem transformed, this takes into account the rise of new digital technologies and tech platforms. And again, that was the Heritage Minister, Pascal Saint-Ange. We'll have more on that story in the coming days. But right now, let's turn to Alberta, where Premier Danielle Smith and the Industry Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, stood side by side today as both the Alberta and federal governments joined Dow Chemical to announce the world's first net zero plant to produce so-called green plastics, an $11.5 billion project that will create hundreds of permanent jobs and thousands of construction jobs in Fort Saskatchewan. Premier Smith, 
I feel that every time we share a stage together, it's all about job, it's all about opportunities, it's all about growth. I'm already trying to plan our next meeting in the agenda because every time we're together, there's good things happening. And, and so uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you and your colleagues from, from the cabinet in Alberta. Boy, I thought Randy Boissonneau was the energizer bunny, but I think Minister Champagne is. I feel a lot warmer after that. And the next time Minister Champagne and I share a stage, we'll be in Dubai at COP28. And I'm so glad you've given us such a great story to tell on the international stage. So a marked difference from the more vitriolic language that we saw earlier this week when Alberta invoked its Sovereignty Act. And to talk about this, we're now joined by Rick Bell, columnist for the Calgary Sun. Rick, always good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've, I've been longing to get back on CPAC. We're all the action. <laughs> well, you're, you're always welcome. But listen, let's let's talk about this, you know, because, you know, the Sovereignty Act was earlier this week. Today we're seeing uh, some very nice language between the feds and, and the province, Daniel Smith among them. What's behind this tough one day language, nice the next day uh, that we're hearing from Danielle Smith? Well, oh, of course, they're going to be nice when they're together. I mean, that's just diplomacy that's just proper etiquette in fact i can tell you i was speaking with premier smith last night and she was saying she's got an invite to an invitation only dinner uh that stephen gibbo is hosting next week in dubai so she's even going to a dinner that he's going to be the uh the uh, the host for so of course of course they're going to be very civil and they're you know to the degree that they can agree on stuff, they'll of course agree on stuff. It's not like Smith is saying everything that Ottawa has done is bad. She's not saying that. She's saying where we agree with Ottawa, we will join with the federal government in doing stuff that goes according to the Alberta plan. Okay, you know? but 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 if, if they are capable, both sides, Ottawa and the Alberta government, if they are capable of having civil discussion, uh, which Danielle Smith is obviously a part of, why trigger the Sovereignty Act then? Because she says they're not moving off their position. Their position is net zero, power grid by 2035. Her position is impossible in Alberta where the vast majority of electricity is generated by natural gas. So that's why she's not gonna move off that position and they don't seem to be moving off their position, therefore the Sovereignty Act. And in fact, what's happening is her plans are to increase natural gas powered electricity in Alberta over the next years. Okay, so rather than decrease, She's supposed to be trying to decrease it according to Ottawa. She's actually increasing it. So there is the big gulf on, on that particular issue. She does not want 2035 to be the date for Alberta. 2050 mm -hmm. is what she wants. She says 2045 is maybe, but not 2035. Okay, so but if her plan, if she told you her plan is to double, that is that the reasoning for, for exploring the possibility of a Crown Corporation to oversee all of this? Yes, because right now they don't have any natural gas projects in the queue. She claims it's because investors are afraid to invest here with this uh, conflict going on and with the looming federal regulation. So she blames the federal government for that. So if that remains the case, she's going to try to get the private sector to do it. But if it remains the case, this self-styled libertarian premier is 
unbelievably going to have a crown corporation where the government will build plants or help fund plants or buy old plants that people want to sell because of what's going to happen in 2035. Yeah. So that's why that has to come in. There has to be a way to build it. If she wants to build natural gas, right now there aren't people lined up to do that. Okay, but and you she know, blames Ottawa. so she's blaming Ottawa. But you know, it, it, it's interesting because I was speaking with Jonathan Wilkinson last night, and he was saying, you know, not only are are the, the these regulations still at the proposal stage, uh, stage not yet passed, uh, you know, they're pointing to twenty thirty five. But he says uh, their discussion so far does allow leeway that pushes net zero for Alberta to almost twenty fifty. Twenty forty five is the year he was talking about. So if that's what we heard from the from Minister Wilkinson. Uh, Again, why trigger the, the, the act if the, the Ottawa seems to be still willing to negotiate? Is this really about um, creating a justification for a crown corporation, or is this about the relationship with Ottawa? Well, I don't think it's a justification. Unless Danielle Smith has changed her own political philosophy, I don't think she's that happy with going for a crown corporation. She is a very, very small government libertarian, so at least in her personal political philosophy. No, I, I, quite frankly, she has said, well, she told me yesterday that there isn't, whatever Wilkinson is saying, that there hasn't been a lot of movement from the federal government. So she is saying something that sounds different than what the federal government is saying. Okay, so so that said then, Rick, from what you're seeing, what you're hearing, how is Danielle Smith, uh, her, her position on the Sovereignty Act, on doing this for, 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 for gas-powered electricity, how is that being received, not only in Calgary, but in other parts of the province, from what you're hearing? Well, initially, I think, I mean, Alberta politicians have dined out on fighting with Ottawa. That's always been the card they play no matter what. I would suspect at this point, she probably has 50% plus one. She probably does have the majority at least wanting to see how this rolls out. We're we're in the early days. On the Crown Corporation, there's people within conservatism in Alberta that are still have many questions about that. But about the idea of going after Ottawa more substantially than just the usual strongly worded letter or the usual court fight that goes on for years, I think there is at least at the beginning some uh, support for that. And the indicator I have for that is she's already talking about using the Sovereignty Act again. She talked to me about it. There are advanced discussions going on right now for your viewers at CPAC with around the cabinet table to use sooner rather than later the Sovereignty Act on another file. Okay. Uh, any hint as to what file that might be, Rick? Yes, it'll be on, if, depending what the emissions cap on oil and gas looks like. And that's supposed to, there's supposed to be a development on that file fairly soon. And she says, if we judge it to be unconstitutional, untenable, unattainable, hurting us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that will be another one. Okay. Methane cap, another one. So they're they're already sitting around the cabinet table, if you can imagine this, saying, we just rolled out this one, but we're already talking about scenarios where we use it again. So it doesn't sound like she's backing away and being a little scared that this might be, a, you know, the bridge too far. At least not yet. But again, we're in the very early hours of this happening. 
Okay. Well, at least that guarantees we'll speak again in the future, Rick. I'll have to listen for today. Oh, yeah. There'll be another one. Trust There'll be another this one. This is like I used to cover boxing in Vegas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if this is a 12-round fight, we're only in round one. <laughs> okay. Well, but lots to talk about that in the future. But for now, Rick, thank you for that. Always good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you as well. Thank you. Addressing housing affordability was a key focus of last week's fall economic statement with the $6.3 billion in new spending for the construction of new homes, $15 billion earmarked for government-backed loans through its apartment construction loan program, and more money for affordable housing and cooperative housing. But given the rates of homelessness in the country and the struggle many Canadians face in trying to find a home they can afford, is it enough? Well, to help us answer that question, we're now joined by Marie-José Houle, the federal housing advocate. Madame Houle, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Now, your office says if Canada is going to find its way out of this housing crisis, it needs to focus on purpose-built rental homes. So from what you saw in last week's economic update, is the government doing enough to get those housing units built? Well, it's not just purpose-built rental. It is purpose-built non-market rentals you know as the con- uh, government has had this conversation around supply since i started my job back in in 22 and that very first budget uh you know that i was really paying attention to you know it was the conversations always been supply 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 the important part is the right kind of supply and when we're looking at investing taxpayers funds which is really precious this is the 82 or now a hundred billion dollar you know once in a generation type of investment that the federal government is looking at doing it has to be uh, invested in the right place and it also needs to provide real results for people so as we're looking at um, you know affordability being one of the biggest questions for a lot of people across the country um, you know is it going to be affordable beyond the first buyer or the first renter and when we're looking at the track record of non-market housing they're the only ones that can actually produce housing and keep it affordable in perpetuity and that is the biggest bang for taxpayers dollars okay well let's talk a bit more about that because there was money set aside for for social and cooperative housing does that uh, address any of your concerns well, it's beginning. Uh, it's very welcome, um, as was the decision around um, alleviating the, the GST for construction of new co-op housing. Those some of the things that we're, we were looking for and we're certainly going to be looking for with this upcoming budget is an acquisition fund as well, because Canada is losing more housing that is affordable than we are actually been able to build, and at an astro- uh, uh, like astronomical rate, in fact, um, due to financialization of housing, due to uh, you know investment um, or, or treating housing as an investment. And we've seen that in, in um, homes, single detached homes, but also very pronounced in the purpose-built rentals. So we're looking at, uh, and you know, we're hoping to see an acquisition fund so that nonprofits and housing co-ops can purchase uh, some purpose-built rentals that are um, you know, still perhaps affordable um, naturally, you know, through through the time, especially in places where they have um, 
uh, rent control and where people have been living there for a long time and to really protect uh, the people's tenancies there and protect the affordability because without vacancy control, meaning that um, landlords can raise the rents uh, to whatever they feel the market will bear once the unit is vacant and that affordability that the previous tenants uh, were were enjoying that is forever lost to the market and that feel that needs to be protected right now financialized actors meaning real estate investment trust pension fund um, pen, pension fund ac uh, acquisitions and asset managers own over well between 20 and 30 percent of the rental stock in Canada doesn't seem like much but uh, it's usually very targeted and very concentrated. So for example, little Jamaica in Toronto, most of the housing there is now uh, owned by financialized actors and we've got record amount of evictions, rent evictions and uh, people that are rendered homeless, but it's also tearing apart the community and in tearing apart a, a community that is, um, you know, quite racialized, it also destroys the informal, uh, economic networks as well as the local businesses. So the impact is very deep mm -hmm. and we're looking at the harm. So these harms need to be addressed and that can be done through an acquisition fund so that nonprofits and housing co-ops can purchase these these buildings. Yeah, well, well as you say, and, and this stock is dwindling, but at the same time we're hearing, as you know, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, they say that this country needs to build some 3.45 million homes to meet demand by 2030. But interestingly, you say that the CMHC is actually underestimating that number. Uh, exactly by how much? Well, there, you know, I... Um, we asked uh, Dr. Carolyn Witzman to do a human rights approach to measuring the need and not just um, what we want in this country in terms of housing. Whereas CMHC focused on home ownership, um, Carolyn Witzman focused on rentals. Uh, people who rent are the hardest hit uh, by this, uh, you know, the economic crisis, by the pandemic. Um, and and by the housing crisis, and you know we would need at least 4.4 million homes um, to meet the needs of people. Dr. Carolyn Witzman focused on you know the people who aren't traditionally counted. Uh, and if you're not counted, you're not reflected in Canadian policy. And, you know, it's people in long-term care, people who are incarcerated, people who are homeless. And, you know, as you know, everyone's got a homeless encampment in their backyard now. It's not just something you see in Vancouver. We're seeing it in the far north. And, um, you know, these people are not counted when we're talking about the housing need, and they are certainly not counted in CMHC's numbers. And that's why we need to, to think about, um, you know, the supply issue is not just about those who want or what the private market is willing to build. Um, it, it is really about what we need as a country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah quickly losing time, but I, I, I do want to touch on that phrase that you use, the human rights approach to housing. You gave one example of it, but philosophically, how would that change policies in this country, do you think? Well, first, it's about engaging with people and looking at the need, and it's starting with those that need it the most. It is, um, well, especially in, uh, if we're calling things a crisis, it is about mobilizing 
all of the available resources to solve the issue as soon as possible, starting with those most in need. Now, I understand that, you know, with the economic crisis that we're facing right now, um, you know, everyone is feeling the pinch. But people who are worried about their mortgages, uh, mortgage payments increasing as they renegotiate their mortgage um, with the higher interest rates, it's, you know, they're going to see their mortgages go up by a few hundred dollars. The people who've been renting, who've, uh, in, you know, experienced rent evictions or have lost their homes and trying to find homes, you know, the home, the minute uh, uh, the rental, as soon as it's vacated, has been going up two, three, four, five, up to a thousand dollars a month. Um, due to financialization and um, traditionally people who rent are not usually people who have the means. Um, they're usually in, in lower paying jobs. They are usually, you know, otherwise they might have put money together to buy a house. Um, not everyone, but about a lot because this is kind of the housing model here in Canada. Um, and people who are uh, have mortgages pay themselves, whereas people who pay rent pay someone else's mortgage. And they're the mm -hmm. ones who are just the, that much more vulnerable. Marie-José Ula, thank you very much for the time. Really appreciate your insight into all of this. Well, thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. Are Canadians getting tired of immigration? A new poll from Leger says a majority of Canadians now think this country is letting in too many people. And to talk about this, we're now joined by Christian Bourque, Executive Vice President for Leger. Christian, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So let's begin with how Canadians are feeling uh, generally uh, about immigration right now. This country welcomed uh, something like 437,000 immigrants in 2022, plans to welcome 465,000 this year, half a million by 2025. Are Canadians supportive of that plan? Less and less. Um, we've been measuring the same variable. Are, is Canada admitting or should they, we admit more immigrants, the same amount, or fewer immigrants in the, in the next year? Um, it used to be that about 30% of Canadians would say, we're admitting too many immigrants. Now we're up to 48%. And when we actually uh, uh, spell out the exact number of immigrants uh, we are supposed to, uh, to welcome in the next year, which are the levels that were announced by the government of Canada, then it's actually 53% of Canadians who say that's too many. Um, so the trend is moving in that direction of Canadians feeling more and more uh, that we are letting in too many uh, uh, immigrants each year. So why that level of pushback? You know, the government makes this argument mm -hmm. that we, we need higher immigration numbers to uh, meet a shortage of workers, to pay taxes, support Canadians as the population ages, not to mention the, uh, Canada's declining birth rate. Do people not see the value in bringing in more immigrants to Canada? Well, the difference between what we used to measure on, on, on this topic and what we're seeing today is now there are sort of mixed feelings about immigration. What you've just mentioned are they great for cultural diversity in our country? Yes, 76% of Canadians agree with that. Uh, are they good uh, uh, in terms of ensuring population growth uh, in the context of an aging population? Massive majority of Canadians feel exactly the same way. Uh, do they have a positive impact on our tax base? Yes, people agree. Where there is an issue now, and this is new uh, of, of the last couple of years and certainly post-pandemic, is Three quarters of Canadians say that immigration are now, or immigration is contributing to our housing crisis and to the availability of, of affordable households uh, or housing in Canada. So that's the new aspect. This, this 
potentially negative impact that immigration may have on our economy and certainly our access to affordable housing. Okay, so so based on that then, if the economy were to improve, if housing start programs actually improve the, the housing stock numbers out there, do you see these numbers becoming more positive towards immigration or is this beyond economic? Is there an attitude that's settling in? Not really. I, I don't believe that there is, because what we're seeing in the survey is it's it, it's not negative news about immigrants. It's negative perspectives on the impact of immigration on our economy. So if economic in indicators were to improve, potentially Canadians would want to go back to this sort of welcoming country that, you know, please come in. Uh, even in the questionnaire, when we ask about, you know, uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees that came in uh, uh, with the uh, emergency status, should we welcome them now as immigrants into Canada? Uh, and a majority of Canadians say yes. So they want Canada to be a welcoming country. But right now, because of the affordable, uh, affordability crisis that we're in, uh, some Canadians are actually questioning the impact of immigration on our economy and ultimately on their own pocketbooks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so almost a bread and butter issue up against uh, this yeah. idea of what Canadians want this country to be. You know, Christian, what's, what's also interesting when I was looking at the numbers was it's not one region versus another region on this. There seems to be a, a consistency as to how Canadians are feeling coast to coast to coast. Yeah, it used to be when we measured this 5, 10, 15 years ago, Quebecers were a bit more tentative when it when it came to immigration levels. And a large part of it was explained by sort of this this uh, um, I would say fear of losing their language and culture, the sort of fear uh, of the survival of the French language, uh, which, of course, was not present in the rest of the country. Now, what we're seeing is that there are no regional differences when it comes to should we welcome more, fewer uh, or the same uh, uh, amount of immigrants, because basically now it's about economics uh, and the economics behind our immigration policy, uh, not some other social factor that may be explaining regional differences. Well, very interesting numbers to look at. Certainly will be interesting to see the type of reaction it gets here in Ottawa. Uh, Christian Bork, thank you very much for the time tonight. Anytime. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. U.S. officials have charged an Indian national in a murder-for-hire plot to assassinate an American citizen in New York. The alleged target was a person of Indian origin and an active supporter of the Sikh separatist movement. U.S. prosecutors say the intended victim was a known associate of Hardeep Singh Najjar, a Sikh nationalist gunned down outside his Gurdwara in Surrey, B.C. last spring. The Canadian government alleges the Indian government was involved in Najjar's murder, prompting questions about how the U.S thwarted an assassination plot when Canada could not. I'm not in a position to discuss the details of what information the police have or didn't have or are, are searching for. But why did what India I can say well, again, I don't speak for the government of India, but what I can say is that the Canadian law enforcement agencies have been very, very much engaged uh, with their American counterparts in these investigations. 
The federal government will reportedly award U.S. aerospace giant Boeing a multi-billion dollar contract to replace Canada's aging fleet of military surveillance planes. Both the CBC and the Globe and Mail say an announcement detailing this contract will come on Thursday. Ottawa did face pressure from two premiers, industry groups and the House Defence Committee to open up the competition for the new planes. Other manufacturers like Quebec-based Bombardier also wanted a transparent procurement process for the contract said to be worth between six and ten billion dollars. But the federal government said last year Boeing's P-8A Poseidon is the best alternative to the CP-140 Aurora due to be retired in 2030. And the Conservative Party's opposition to a revised Canada-Ukraine free trade deal has made its way to NATO headquarters. The Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, is in Brussels for meetings with Canada's allies and says she reaffirmed this country's commitment to Ukraine with her foreign counterparts. Many uh, foreign ministers uh, came to see me. Uh, regarding their preoccupation uh, that the leader of the opposition, Paliev in Canada, was not in favor of this uh, free trade agreement. And I had to reassure them uh, on Canada's commitment and the government's commitment towards it. And again, that was Melanie Jolie, the Foreign Affairs Minister in Brussels. Well, that is our program for this Wednesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Estébégin avec l'Essentiel.